Game and Fish Department. Welcome to Get Outside with the Wyoming Game and Fish. It's a podcast where we discuss current issues and topics regarding Wyoming's wildlife so that hunters, anglers, and others who appreciate the outdoors can get more insight into what makes Wyoming's wildlife so special. I'm Ray Hageman. Chronic wasting disease. If you're a hunter, You're probably well aware of what it is, but it's fair to say that few of us are actually that knowledgeable about what its impacts are, what animals it does and doesn't affect, how it's transmitted, and whether or not it's even safe for humans to consume an animal infected with it. Today's podcast, well, you could essentially call it CWD 101. Casper Information and Education Specialist Janet Millick joins me to talk with Wyoming Game and Fish Wildlife Veterinarian Dr. Samantha Allen. Wyoming Game and Fish Wildlife Health Laboratory Supervisor Hank Edwards, and Casper Game and Fish Regional Wildlife Management Coordinator Justin Benfit. All three will give us the basics about this disease, how it's transmitted, and the Game and Fish view on human consumption of animals that test positive for the disease. Sam, let's begin with some background. How did we find out about chronic wasting disease? When I start talking about diseases, I start talking about pathogens. So when people think of pathogens, they are thinking of bacteria, they're thinking of viruses. And for chronic wasting disease, we're talking about a prion. So what exactly is a prion? Well, for one thing, they're part of a family called TSEs. Those are known as transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. Um, And these prions are basically misformed or misfolded proteins. Um, And so breaking down what a TSC is, these prions are transmissible, right? So that's part of the word. They can be spread from one individual to another. Um, They kind of impact brain tissue. So these misfolded proteins build up in the brain, cause holes, um, kind of destroy parts of it. And when you look at the brain under a microscope, a lot of people say it looks like a sponge. So it's very porous looking. So that's where you get the second word in a TSC. So they're transmissible prions that cause these sponges in the brain. And then you have encephalopathy basically is an infection or disease in the brain. So that's where our TSCs come from. Chronic wasting disease is a disease in there caused by a prion, infects cervids. And I'll let someone else kind of talk about all the different kinds of cervids that it affects. Um, But how we break this down is that because you have all these holes being caused in the brain, you have clinical signs like ataxia, you have clinical signs like lethargy, and then emaciation. And basically ataxia is, you know, your drunken uncle at a party. You know, he knows he wants to go in a direction, but how he gets there is anyone's real guess. Um, And so when you break down chronic wasting disease, chronic, it takes a really long time for these clinical signs to build up. So these deer don't just die once they get infected. It takes one, two years, three years, and then wasting, which we kind of just said emaciation. Um, So that's kind of basics there. Well, Sam, I'm really glad that you're here with us. You're from Canada, and that must allow you to pronounce what a TSE is. I'm not even going to go there, but you did a fantastic job. So, you know, you're making good progress. Can you say that for us? Progress and process. 
you know, that's the first word we learn in kindergarten is TSC and progress. So yeah, that's how we go. <laughs> Good deal. Those are some of our favorite words to make her say. Um, so Justin, Sam used the word cervid a lot. Um, what is a cervid and which animals can contract CWD? Yeah, so cervid just refers to the Latin, um, the, the taxonomic name for members of the deer family, the cervidae family. CWD can affect any member of the deer family. And in Wyoming, it's pretty simple. We have four members. We have mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, and moose. And then also, though, um, you know, CWD has also been found to affect uh, caribou and reindeer as well. So how is chronic wasting disease transmitted? Well, it can be transmitted through a, a few different ways. Um, animal-to-animal contact is a primary way. It can be transmitted through things like saliva. For example, deer and elk are pretty social animals, so they come into um, repeated contact with each other, like through grooming and things like that. So it can be transmitted that way. It can also likely be sexually transmitted, um, just through copulation, through mating. And then there's also environmental contamination that goes on. So prions can be shed in the environment from a number of different ways. They can be shed through feces, through urine, um, potentially at water sources. And so contaminated environmental sources could also um, provide a means of transmission to a cervid. And, and I guess another thing that we do know is that prions can reside in the environment for a very long and really unknown amount of time. I think in one research facility, I think uh, the scrapie, which is the sheep version of a TSE, scrapie prions were, were found to reside in the environment 16 years later after sheep were removed from a pen. Um, here at our Wildlife Research Center here in Wyoming, we know that, that uh, animals put in pens that haven't had cervids in them for a while still can readily come down with the disease. So yeah, the environmental contamination can certainly play a pretty big role in transmission. So, so Justin, we have other big game species in Wyoming other than mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, and moose. Do pronghorn, do bighorn sheep, um, do they get chronic wasting disease? No, and, and we've actually looked pretty extensively at that um, over the years. Uh, Hank's shop has tested um, several uh, other other big game species for, for CWD, and, and it just it, it's just strictly a, a disease of the deer family. You mentioned a few of the ways that uh, chronic wasting disease is transmitted, but I can ask maybe Hank as well this question. How, how far down that path are we in understanding how it's transmitted? Are we still in the covered wagon stage of this, or are we you know, to the halfway point on it? Uh, are, are we pretty certain about how it's transmitted, or are some still some things that we still don't know? We know that it can be transmitted either from animal to animal or from the environment to animal. And it's really tough. We're, we're probably never going to really fully understand how that transmission mechanism is occurring. But we know that it likely shifts depending on how long this disease has been established in an area and, and just how prevalent it is. So when this disease first moves into a newer area, chances are the primary mechanism for transmission is animal to animal because the, the prions just haven't simply had enough time to accumulate in the environment. But when the disease has been well established for years or decades and at, and at pretty high prevalence levels, then it's very likely that environmental transmission, you know, from the environment to animal is also a much more significant driver of this disease. The extent to which which is playing a bigger role at that point is unknown, and it would, it would sure be nice to know, but it's really going to be tough to get out. 
Is there a cure for chronic wasting disease? There is no cure for chronic wasting disease. There's been some efforts to try and, and administer antibiotics. Uh, there's been efforts to um, try and just provide uh, supportive veterinary care. Uh, vaccines have been tried. And to date, there's nothing that um, seems to lengthen out how long an animal can survive with this disease. Should a vaccine ever be developed, what way would it have to be administered in wildlife populations? A vaccine would be really difficult to develop for this type of uh, pathogen because it doesn't cause that inflammatory reaction that vaccines tend to be based on. So um, I think the first really important questions would be, how do we develop a vaccine that works with an immune system that isn't reactive to the prion and not so much how do we get a vaccine out there, which also has a number of you know issues around administering a vaccine to a wildlife population. Um, I would just take it a step back as we still need to really understand how to develop if we even can for something like that. And I think to add into to what Dr. Allen was saying, one of the challenges is, in, in, like she was alluding to, is that the body doesn't recognize it as it a as it's a pathogen, or as a pathogen, excuse me. And that's because it's it's essentially the animal's own protein that then becomes misfolded by this prion. So it's not a virus or it's not a bacteria, and so therefore it just can be real challenging to to develop a vaccine like that. So Justin, where does chronic wasting disease? occur in Wyoming, understanding that as we're talking, it's near the end of 2020. You know, unfortunately, we've seen this kind of inevitable march across the state of chronic wasting disease. To to some extent, we're documenting this disease in new areas because we're also looking for it far more intensively than we ever have before. But, but in a nutshell, to answer your question, you know, the disease was first thought to originate in northeast Colorado and southeast Wyoming, and that's where we first identified it in wild deer and elk um, in Wyoming, which was southeast Wyoming. And since then, it's proliferated through the Laramie Range up through central Wyoming. And then you fast forward, oh, about 20 years to the early 2000s, and we've now documented this disease in parts of northeast Wyoming and also the Bighorn Basin, which is, you know, in northwest Wyoming. And then Fast forward to present day, and we've essentially and unfortunately documented this disease throughout almost the entire state, the exception being extreme southwest Wyoming is the, is really the only part of the state where we haven't yet seen it. So chronic wasting disease isn't just a disease of Wyoming. Where else in the U.S. or for that matter on the planet does it occur? Chronic wasting disease now is found in 26 of our United States, as well as, um, is it two Canadian provinces? provinces? I think it is considered two, but it was recently found in a captive cervid herd in Quebec, so that would kind of make it three. Three, and then North Korea, Sweden, and Norway. So this is a worldwide problem. We think about it with Wyoming and Colorado being the main emphasis, but no, it's, this disease has now been spread almost across the world. So is chronic wasting disease then uh, transferable to humans? That seems to be the money question that everyone gets around to quickly asking about this, is can humans pick this up? There's been a, a ton of research that's been done on just how likely this disease is to jump to humans. 
Unfortunately, there's just as much research that indicates it will as there is research that indicates it probably will not jump to humans. So right now we're kind of in a gray area. We don't have any good data one direction or the other. So uh, the CDC, um, I think, is wise to recommend that CWD-positive animals not be consumed. Until we have better data, I think this is a really good practice to follow. Just don't eat positive animals. Sam, are there other prion diseases out there? Unfortunately, there are, uh, you know, if we break it down in animal versus human, there are more prion diseases. Um, on the animal side, um, we've identified, and I'm using kind of the royal we here because I actually didn't do any of this work. I'm just kind of relaying it to everyone. There's one in cattle, which is more probably known by people. It's called bovine spongiform encephalopathy, so also known as BSE, but a lot of people go by mad cow. And there was a big outbreak in that in the UK um, a little while, I'm meaning like 20 years ago. Uh, chronic wasting disease, obviously. Um, scrapie is a prion disease in sheep. And then we also have some transmissible mink encephalopathies, and there's a feline one as well. Um, there's probably a couple other there that I missed. And as far as humans go, there's again about five of them. But I'll just mention the two that are uh, the most commonly known. I am going to screw up how I say this one, but uh, Kurtzfeld-Jakob disease is the one that people normally know in humans. And the other kind of cooler one that has more of a history with it is Kuru, um, and that one was identified in the 50s and 60s. But there are more. There are variants, and there's a familial insomnia one, which is terrifying. But yeah, there are definitely other prion diseases out there. In the past, uh, when we first started talking about this issue years back, media loved to attempt to connect this in mad cow disease. There's some differences. I think the differences are that, uh, unfortunately, again, for prions, or fortunately, um, they're very species specific. So the ones that really target sheep versus cattle and kind of our cervid species really stick to those species group. Um, you asked before about kind of how is it transmitted to people and is it transmitted to people. Um, as far as we know with scrapie and chronic wasting disease, we really don't see a lot of those species barrier jumps. So, and by species barrier, I mean you don't see chronic wasting disease making these big leaps into stuff like dogs or bears. The kind of weird thing about BSC is that this is one of the ones where they actually have seen that species barrier jump, jump into people. And so you have a variant curved cell Jakob disease, um, which is known to be caused by BSC. So it's, it's different in that kind of way. Hank, how does the game and fish test for chronic wasting disease? We test a couple different methods. Um, we use the lymph nodes from uh, right around the throat area. The ret they're called the retropharyngeal lymph nodes. We use those to test with what's a test called an ELISA. Uh, that's an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. It takes us about, oh, four to five hours to run a test. It's a very accurate test. It works quite well. It's kind of expensive, but it works quite well. There's other methods out there called uh, immunohistochemistry, or we just say IHC. That one takes much longer time, but um, uh, that's also another very good test. That's offered by the Wyoming State Veterinary Laboratory. So is a CWD-positive animal safe to eat? Long story short, I would say not. Um, there's not a great 
a lot of great information out there. And like Hank alluded to as much good information, you know, saying we shouldn't, um, there's good information that says it doesn't matter. I think the fact that we don't have a good, you know, yes or no answer, you should always reside on the side of caution because we are talking about your life and no one really wants, like we talked about those spongy holes in your brain. I have friends and family that probably get by with the spongy holes in their brain, but I like my brain. Um, so I would go on the side of the CDC and the World Health Organization. They recommend not to, and that's also what I recommend for everyone. Hank, when you test in the laboratory and an animal is positive, what do you send to people and what does that letter say? Before we go on to that question, I just tack on to what, what Sam just, just mentioned that, you know, there isn't a cure for this disease. So um, once you get it, you got it. So like Sam said, it's your life. And um, unfortunately, there's no way to stop it. It's kind of like rabies in that respect, right? So, um, uh, yeah, I think I totally agree that it's probably wise we don't consume these, these CWD-positive animals. And then Justin Binfett just raised well, his hand. Yeah. Go ahead, Can I Justin? jump in here, though, too? So this is an interesting question. So from a, from a guy that's out checking hunters and their deer in the field, um, you know, we get asked this question all the time, too. And, and I certainly defer to Hank and, and Sam and, and the CDC and the World Health Organization on all that. And that recommendation is it's really unequivocal, right? If your deer tests positive, don't eat it. And we're always going to stand by that recommendation. But I also like to talk about the relative risk a little bit for those folks that maybe don't get their animal tested um, because they just weren't able to logistically or for whatever reason. And we do get a wide range of, of personal choice and concerns regarding this. So some folks really, really get concerned and will take every measure they can to have their animal tested and ensure it tests negative before they eat it. Others just don't care. And there's everything in between. And I find it kind of interesting that for the folks that do get really, really concerned, in fact, Hank, I think you've got some interesting anecdotes you could share about, you know, some hunters wanting to burn their freezer and sell their truck because they had a positive deer in the back. And I do like to remind folks of the relative risk that's out there. You know, I mean, you can have an outbreak of E. coli and cantaloupe that kills 36 people in this country and, and, and no one is, is swearing off fruit for the rest of their life or or E. coli and B for things like that. So I always like to remind folks, there's a number of foodborne illnesses that you can get, unfortunately. And I just ask for a little perspective on CWD. If you're not able to get your deer tested and things like that, that um, there's, there's relative risk to consider there. That's right. And I think that's a good point. This is all based on someone's level of risk and what risks they're willing to take. We take risks every day, right? Whether we get behind the wheel of our vehicle or we drink alcohol in the evening or whatever it may be. So everybody has a different level of risks. And um, that's right. CWD fits right in there. And appears to be fairly a personal choice. But back to that letter, what do you say in your letter to people, Hank? So every, every animal that tests positive in our laboratory, um, the hunter will be sent by email or, or snail mail a letter that outlines that their animal was positive and that the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control recommend that that animal not be consumed. That letter does give uh, the recipient the legal right to dispose of that carcass if they choose to do so. Um, but, but that's basically what the letter outlines, is that 
your animal was positive, and um, if you choose to dispose of it, this, this letter gives you the legal right to do so. So, so, Justin, would you recommend that hunters get a harvested animal tested? Well, that's a yes, no, maybe question. So, um, uh, first of all, if, if hunters are concerned, uh, then yes, absolutely. And, and the department will, will do our very, very best to accommodate every hunter in the state that wishes to have their animal tested. I really emphasize yes, if, if that hunter is h harvesting a deer or an elk in one of our CWD sampling priority areas. So we have a surveillance program that rotates around the state on a four to five year basis. And we have different herds that we're picking in various regions around the state. And these are focal areas for us to try to gather as many samples as we can so we can get a better understanding of what the true prevalence of this disease is in our herds. Well, so if you're hunting in one of those areas, we ask that you do everything you can to try to help us get your animal tested. The no being if, if, you know, if you're comfortable with just going out and hunting, even if CWD is in the area and you're not in one of our focal areas, it doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to have just a few samples from a given area if it's not a focal area for us because we also have laboratory capacity issues to think about. And with our surveillance strategy, we can only accommodate so many samples. Again, I, going back to that, we will, we will sample any hunter's deer that wishes to have it tested. I, I would chip in there, though, just to reemphasize what Justin said, that if you're hunting in one of our focal areas and you're not that concerned about chronic wasting disease from a human health standpoint, we are still very, very interested in getting a sample from your deer or elk for our uh, surveillance program. So I guess I'm making a plea. If you're in one of our focal areas, please make the effort to, to get a sample to us. We, we really may appreciate it, and it, it makes a difference on, on how we monitor this disease. And correct me if I'm wrong, Hank, but there's a way that if they don't want to know the results, they don't have to get notified of those absolutely, results. Absolutely, absolutely. We can just write on there, do not notify, and, and we will not pass on those results to you if you don't want to know them. But we appreciate having that data from your from your harvest. And that data is pretty critical to help us learn more about the health of the herds. So this is one that is always kind of a, a touchy subject when we bring it up around the agency. Um, over the last couple of years, it has been hot in the media. Um, each of you kind of throw in your own little thoughts on this, but tell me why zombie deer disease gained so much traction in relation to chronic wasting disease. I think that it was just an easy way for the press to um, sell uh, import sell CWD as, as maybe a threat to human health, and um, um, that's how I think it really got started. Of course, that's been what 10, 15 years ago that zombie deer disease came out uh, that was really used. But that's what I think. I think it's just the way the press spun it. Yeah, unfortunately, a, a deer exhibiting those clinical signs in the the advanced stages of the disease do kind of, they're somewhat reminiscent of a zombie. Um, you know, they drool and there's kind of nobody home and their eyes aren't really focusing very well and their ears droop and things are like that. Are the deer aggressive? No, they are not. Okay. They're far from Did it. they come back from the dead? <laughs> they do not. Oh, good to know. I'm glad to hear that. Well, is there anything else you guys would like to add about chronic wasting disease? I know today has been just kind of a, a 101 basic question and answer, and we have many more 
um, podcast to follow in this series that that addresses each of these issues more in depth. But is there something else you guys would like to add? Yeah, I would. I'd like to add that all those symptoms and signs that that Sam described when she uh, was telling about chronic wasting disease in the beginning of this podcast, it's important to realize that those signs don't appear until the last, oh, four to six weeks that the animals have the disease. Though they can be infected for a year and a half prior to that. And that is very common that, that hunters will harvest an animal that's nice and fat and, and healthy, and they think, well, there's no way that that animal can have the disease. And yet, um, because they can have the disease for such a long time before those symptoms show up, they'll still test very strong positive on our tests without showing any outward signs of chronic wasting disease. So even these animals that are coming through check stations and they've, they're in great body condition, they have wonderful fat, they have you know, enormous antlers, they're coming back CWD, even though they weren't drooling. CWD positive. That's the biggest surprise that hunters have is when they get a call from me saying your animal was was CWD positive and they just don't get it because the animal was fat. There's no way it can have CWD. Would you say that the majority of animals harvested? um, The vast majority, like over 90%. That end up positive. Yes. Have those. Interesting. My two random kind of closing thoughts are the other thing to think about is a lot of these clinical signs are very general in that other things can be causing this too. So in our endemic areas, we think of CWD right away, but there are other diseases that can be causing these things. And I mean, we brought up zombie deer disease. Rabies is also something that can look like this. They can get brain abscesses that cause some of these signs. Um, EHDV, which is known as epizootic hemorrhagic disease, can also look like some of these things. So if you are ever concerned, um, you should definitely reach out to us and we can figure that out for you. Um, And my last thing here is just resources. Please use the Wyoming Game and Fish resources that are provided to you. They're fact-checked, they're scientific, and they're up to date. Um, If you start scrolling the web and find yourself in a hole on YouTube and you think that CWD was caused by, you know, some weird spore created by someone in their basement, um, please don't call me because I won't listen to you, so. Yeah, I have one closing thought, and that is, and and I'm probably going to echo this in a in another podcast when we talk about the recently passed chronic wasting disease management plan. But you know, while we certainly acknowledge and respect um, hunters' concerns that wish to have their animal tested, and we'll do everything we can to try to to facilitate that testing, um, our primary emphasis as as wildlife managers is to to better understand how this disease is affecting our wildlife herds. And we know now through some research, um, some research that we've been a part of, that CWD at high enough prevalence levels is, is impacting our herds. Um, it's fairly significant levels. And, and for us to really truly understand the level of those potential impacts, we need to know how prevalent this disease is across the state. And so we need your help to, to have your help get your animal tested especially when you're in our, our focal priority areas for that given year. And not only that, and then once we have that information, then we can actually start to formulate some management recommendations on perhaps maybe some, some measures to undertake to help reduce the prevalence of this disease in a herd. So, so that really is our agency's primary mission here with respect to CWD. You talked a little bit about 
the health of the herd and why we're doing this. And a lot of questions that we really get um, are about the genetics. Um, that seems to be kind of a hot topic out there a lot, particularly with the elk. Do any of you guys have any information that you can talk about? Are we seeing some resistance in elk with different genetics, different alleles? Can anyone follow up with that? I think resistance may be uh, the wrong word to use here. So certainly genetics do uh, influence how long that incubation period is. So in deer, the, the influence of genetics um, is, isn't as great as it is in elk. So we know that elk can live much longer in the face of CWD given the right genetic profile, but they still come down with the disease. So maybe they don't die in two years, maybe they die in five years or six years or seven years, but they still come down with the disease. And the big worry there is that these resistant genotypes, if you can use that phrase again, um, that these animals are actually on the landscape longer and they're shedding prions and feces and urine. So actually it, they may be more of a concern and that they're, they're spreading this disease over a longer period of time. We'd like to thank our guests today on the podcast, Game and Fish Wildlife Veterinarian, Dr. Samantha Allen, Game and Fish Wildlife Health Laboratory Supervisor, Hank Edwards, and Wyoming Game and Fish Casper Region Wildlife Management Coordinator, Justin Binfoot. Also, special thanks to Game and Fish Disease Biologist, Jessica Jennings-Gaines, who arranged the interviews and helped produce this program. Our next podcast will deal with a recently completed CWD management plan the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission has approved and the department's use of a collaborative working group to reach a consensus on management strategies. If you have any questions about chronic wasting disease, check out the Wyoming Game and Fish Department's webpage and go to the section devoted to CWD. Thanks for listening.